Thank you for downloading this podcast, one of a series about body arts produced by the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. In this episode, Jeremy McClancy, Professor of Anthropology at Oxford Brookes University, talks to Helen Hales of the Pitt Rivers Museum about a variety of themes, such as the uses of scent and perfume, expressions of womanhood by a minority group in the mountains of Pakistan, and elements of degradation and empowerment experienced through painful processes such as tattooing and scarification. I've been in love with the Pitt Rivers ever since I first came here as a student in the 1970s. And right now we're looking at a case, a display cabinet, which is for scent, or for perfume, or for smells, or for odours. And what this display cabinet shows, in a way, is the limits of any museum, however marvellous it is. Because in a museum, what you can do is you look at objects, you can gawp at them and marvel at them, and they can be presented in different ways. But that's it. You're confined to the visual to a great extent. And what this cabinet is concerned about is its way of reminding us that people not only adorn themselves, but they might also be concerned with other sensuous orders. So, for instance, people in Vanuatu, uh, there's a photograph up here on the top right of dancers from the island of Tanna in Vanuatu, which used to be known as New Hebrides. What they've done is they've had their faces painted, they have dressed up especially for the festive dance, but they've also covered their body with coconut oil in order to make their brown skins glisten and shine. They've also put sweet-smelling dried leaves from um, a plant, I think, close to the peppermint family as armlets around their upper arms and also around their lower legs so that when they dance they will smell sweet and be really distinctive. The reasons for doing this are are varied. One is to show others how well organized, how dedicated they are to what they're doing and quite frankly as some people said it's an excellent way of meeting the opposite sex. So do you think this idea of using scent applies to both sexes as a way of attracting a mate or is it more than just that? The use of scent has a large number of different functions. It can be used, as you say, by either sex, depending on the particular cultural society we're talking to, to attract the other sex. It can be used as ways of uh, making us closer or of establishing contact with the spiritual world in other forms. It can be used as a purgative, a way to cleanse the air of the uh, evil aromas or miasmas that are there. So a large number of different functions, but yes, attracting mates is a very important one of them. And it's interesting because today in the Western world, we use a lot of these exotic-like scents which have come to us uh, via these places like the body shop. That is certainly the case. I mean, throughout the, the Pitt Rivers, there are endless examples, not just of us looking at other cultures, but also of the interaction between the two. Mm. And yes, scents or forms of smell that we apply to our bodies that would have seemed exotic to most Western consumers 50 years ago are now, in fact, really quite ordinary. And then, as you say, uh, these scents can be used in really quite unexpected ways. Like, for instance, of course, there was the Russian army who used to drink perfume during the Second World War because it was the only source of alcohol that they could find. And I found something similar with a sweet-smelling form of boot polish Uh, used by the people of Vanuatu because the young men found that if you diluted that with hot water you could get an alcoholic effect if you drank it. I wouldn't recommend that to any listener. (laughs) 
We're now in front of a case devoted to objects which deal with childhood. And we've got this extraordinary object on the left here, uh, covered in cowrie shells and other buttons and beads. And I believe you know a bit about this piece. Yes, this comes from the Kalasha, uh, who are a group of people who only live in, in three valleys up in the foothills of the Himalayas in Pakistan on the northwestern border with Afghanistan. And they are literally a pocket of people who practice their own uh, religion surrounded by millions and millions of Muslims. They managed to maintain their status really because for many years they in effect acted as a serf class for the neighbouring uh, warlords and petty princes. And in fact I visited this area by, by chance when I was a student in the early 1970s and a beautiful, beautiful place it is too. And I remember women all wearing these headdresses, what you have is a, is, is a long mat-like piece of material about um, half a metre long, covered in this particular case with rows of cowrie shells, and then afterwards you can begin to see series of buttons, whether plastic or metal, there are some military buttons by the looks of it, there's a brooch in the middle, there are little beads, and then there are also small bells. The women, the young women, uh, are given these in a rite of passage when they are recognised no longer as, as sexless little children, but as young girls who will grow into women. At the same time, they don't cut their hair, but plait it, so it becomes very long, and they have one particular long plait, uh, which would, say, reach to the bottom of their back, I, and the bottom of that they would tie a small bell, which meant I remember sitting in a hut there, and in this quiet valley and then you'd hear this little tinkling as a woman went by. So they're distinctive, they're markers of girlhood or womanhood and at the same time they're visually very attractive expressing the aesthetics of the area. While on top of that they are also again like so many of the things in this museum products of the interaction of the locals with a large number of other different peoples around because a number of the objects on this particular headdress are western objects and even the sheer number of cowrie shells which might be thought to be local may well be an indication of how exchange routes have opened up and developed so in this sense when you first look at this headdress, you might think you're looking at a timeless object from a timeless culture, but none of it. It may well be the case that what we're looking at is a particular combination of objects which allow us to date that object really quite well to within, say, maybe about 10 or 20 years. We're now standing in front of uh, the end of the display dealing with much more drastic ways of altering your body, ways of marking and cutting your body. Now I only have my ears pierced, I have quite a low pain threshold, but creating these effects is some ordeal. Yes, I mean the particular cabinet we're looking at at the moment is tattooing, but what is tattooing? Tattooing is perforating the skin and inserting a dye or other dark coloured substance to leave a permanent mark, design or pattern. Tattooing also is an extremely good example of interaction between visiting Westerners and locals because the very word itself comes from a Polynesian language and it's, and it's a product of one of Captain Cook's arrivals on certain uh, Pacific islands, being astonished to find the delicacy, intricacy, complexity, subtlety and, and sheer number of tattoos that some of the locals would wear. 
Obviously, there are a large number of different reasons why people are concerned with wanting to be tattooed. One of them is that the skin, which is, of course, the largest organ in the body, is seen as a permeable surface and therefore open to attack and to danger uh, and penetration in unwanted ways. So tattooing for some peoples is actually a way of creating a new skin as a form of armour or protection against attack from other humans or against perhaps spiritual attack or disease. In other cases, obviously, it is a statement of the group that you belong to, of perhaps age grades or for sex differences. It is also a statement, again, of uh, local ideas of what is beautiful. But I think what's important, one key point which comes up again and again in uh, studies of tattooing is this combination of degradation and empowerment, that people are tattooed because they have to be. If you want to stay in our society, given that you've reached this age, you have to be tattooed in order to be recognised as having moved on to the next stage. It is at the same time an empowerment because it is a way of stating, I've moved up to this particular grade in the life course and therefore I am part of a particular group and we will all protect one another. It may well be also the case that the tattooing has a, a sense of spiritual empowerment. It actually does make you more powerful, less vulnerable, shall we, shall we say. To me it seems, as a very general rule in, in the West, that men tend to have quite large visible tattoos mm. and women sometimes have much smaller discrete tattoos which aren't so easily seen. What's the sort of mentality behind those differences? Well I think that's a very interesting comment. I think it's very much a statement of what's going on in mainstream Western society these days because of course there are a large number of societies in which it's the women who are tattooed rather than the men or the women are as tattooed as the men and those tattoos are as visible as men's, in fact in some cases even more visible. I teach at Oxford Brooks and I remember a number of students have carried out surveys on sex differences in tattooing today among themselves, among the student body and their friends and what they're finding, which to me was a surprise, is that men as you say are tending to go for larger, more visible tattoos on parts of the body where they will be seen quite easily. Women, on the other hand, appear to go for smaller tattoos uh, which are placed on more, shall we call them, more intimate parts of the body and so they're not normally seen by somebody except in the most intimate of moments. And when I've asked some of these women, all right, well, what then is the point of wearing the tattoo uh, if it can't be seen? And they've replied saying, even if that, no one else can see it, the sheer fact I have one has a big effect on me. And then to meet another woman who admits that she has one creates some kind of understanding or sisterhood or bond between us. And they say it is a way also in a sense of giving something to the other person. I'm now exhibiting this to you. No one else has seen it, or recently anyway. So it's a privileged position to get that close to someone and let them into your private sphere. That's the way it was presented to me, yes. OK, we've looked at tattooing, but now we're looking at a display cabinet on scarification. If tattooing is a painful process of permanently marking your body, then scarification is, to many people, a more extreme version of the same kind of process. It is a permanent disfiguration of the body on the whole for cultural reasons. 
whether it is through the insertion of ash or other forms of substance, in order to create a certain raised lump on the body and then to have a large number of these so that they form a particular kind of pattern. Some of these, as shown in the display cabinet here, can be extremely elaborate, covering large sections of the whole body. One thing that's very interesting is that these not only mark what particular tribe or what group or society or culture that you're from, they can also carry a lot more information in that people in certain societies, like for instance among the Nuba in southern Sudan, especially women, will have a variety of scarified marks on their body at different stages in their life course. So when you just look at them, you would be able to tell whether, that, whether this woman has started menstruating, whether she has had any children, how many children she has had, and so on. The amount of information carried by these can be very great. Also, it is possible, though I'm not too sure about this, it may well have tactile dimensions in that people actually find erotic charge in passing their fingers over these series of raised areas. But one very interesting point about scarification is that when we look at tattooing or the use of scents or a large number of other practices here, we can talk to a great extent about different forms of interaction and of intercultural processes um, and forms of exchange between westernized societies, non-westernized societies or westernizing ones and between a number of those societies among themselves.